We are going to be looking at Genesis 9, Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 7 this morning. Genesis 9, 5 through 7. And as you turn there, I want to think about how God values life. God values life. God made man in his image. And even after the fall and being tainted with sin, humanity still contains the image and likeness of God. Being made in the image of God is the foundation to the value of life. It's the reason that God tells humanity in this passage that he will require a reckoning when Human blood is shed. It doesn't matter, as we'll see, if a person sheds blood, if an animal sheds a person's blood, or if a human does. Because we are made in the image of God, it is an affront to God when life is taken. If you would read with me our passage this morning, Genesis 9, 5 through 7. And the word of the Lord says this. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. In this passage, we see that God values life, that it's an affront to God when life is taken. We see that not only does he command that life be protected and vindicated, but he commands that life would flourish, increase, and multiply. Because when that happens, then God's glory, the image of God, is spread throughout the whole world just by the fact that humanity displays something of the image and likeness of God. And so from this passage, we see clearly that God values humanity, values human life. But we also see that God not just himself values it, but he commands society to value life as well in this passage. When God commands society to value life, he not only commands that they do it through justice, through this retribution for shedding a man's blood, but also that we do it through human flourishing, through seeking the flourishing of humanity. So when we compare this passage to other places in the Bible, we'll see that these passages not only apply to God's desire for humanity, not only to society as a whole, but they also are guidelines for what government is ordained by God to do. So let's look at this passage a little more in depth this morning. God says, I will require a reckoning. God puts a responsibility in place for man. You remember in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. God brought a reckoning. God came to Cain and he brought a reckoning for the blood that had been shed. He put a curse onto Cain. In Genesis 6, we read right before the flood, before God brought the flood, the reason he lists as bringing the flood was that the earth was corrupt 
that it was filled with violence is the phrase in Genesis 6:11 and that this violence is the reason listed that God was going to destroy the earth through a flood. And so as we see these examples leading up to here in Genesis, we see that God has been mostly the one who is taking vengeance on wrongdoing, who is bringing the reckoning so to speak up to this point in Genesis. And now after the flood God is describing what society should do in order to bring this kind of reckoning, that he will require it from society. So Genesis 9 is describing society's responsibility. We could say that this is the first time after the fall that God explicitly talks about what the responsibility of government and society is supposed to be in a fallen world. We can maybe say it's implied before this, and we definitely see it from the idea of Adam being given authority over the earth and told to rule it and subdue it. But here's the first time after the fall that God talks about it. Behold, and we know that it's with society, not just with Noah, because God directly is addressing Noah and his offspring. We look at verse 9 and verse 12. God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. Is This covenant is between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verses 9 and 12. So this, this is with all society in view. Not just Noah, not just individuals who got off the ark, but with all society then and all society to come. So this is clearly God's requirement. And I said earlier that this is also the guidelines for government given. So where, where do I get that? Most people look at this passage and say this is where the idea of government starts, at least in a fallen world, where it's implemented, where it's instructed by God. And we can look at this passage and see why that might be the case and why I think that is the case. We read this morning Romans 13. And if you picked up on some of what was in that passage, we'll see similarities between what God directly instructs government to do in Romans 13 and what God tells society to do here in Genesis 9. That there's an authority, a responsibility that's specifically given to government to fulfill these societal requirements of justice and human flourishing, to work for that. So Romans 13:4 says, "The government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer." So Romans 13 clearly tells us that government is an institution that God has put in place. And he's put it in place in order to bring this justice, this retribution for the shedding of blood, and also in order to enact the value of life, really, to show that whenever blood is shed, it's a, it's a demeaning of the value of life, and that seeking the flourishing of the people in society, that is also a way to value life. So Romans 13 is a continuation of Genesis 9 in this way. So at the very least, this passage in Genesis 9 is kind of describing the 
proto idea of government or what government is supposed to look like by valuing life, preserving life, creating justice. And there are some implications that we can draw from this. So one implication would be that government is not just responsible to its citizens to enact these things, to make sure there is a value of life and human flourishing, but government is actually responsible to God for these things. It is God who will require a reckoning, not just the citizens of the land, but God himself who requires this. And so government must be responsible to God and his standards of what this is supposed to look like. We know another implication would be that government must know what is right and wrong according to God's standards in order to bring justice and flourishing. The punishment must fit the crime. That's one way to know what God's standard of right and wrong is. We see that in this passage. The idea of, in Leviticus, it talks about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Here we see the life for life principle that the punishment fits the crime, so to speak. There's an objectifiable wrong done, and there should be an appropriate response to that wrong. And then also that the definition of right and wrong must be according to God's law. So if man is... If man, society, and government is responsible to God for these things, then it's ultimately God's standards that we must follow in these areas. So in this case, creating justice, creating flourishing means operating according to God's standards. So if we think about this, there are some things in God's word that he directly addresses. Right? We think of murder homosexuality, stealing, perjury. These are things clearly uh, what we might call straight line issues. They're commands given by God. And you can draw a straight line from God's command to public policy, you might say, or how the government should enact this. If murder is wrong, then there's a straight line from that to abortion being wrong. If murder is wrong, you see the straight line from God's command to the public policy that should be in place, or how we as a society should enact this. So there are lots of things in the Bible like that. There are also what you might call uh, jagged line issues. So these would be things that are not necessarily directly addressed in the Bible, but we have to think through them and reason through them according to principles in the Bible. So an example of this would be maybe tax codes or how the government is structured or anything that's not directly commanded or addressed in the Bible. So you start here with a principle and then that leads you to this idea and then you get this principle and it leads you to this idea and finally you end up at what might be the public policy thinking through what would be the wisest way to follow God's principles in order to address this. So anything where there's Not a direct command, but we have to reason through with God's wisdom. Those would be kind of jagged line issues where you have to go to multiple principles to get to. And those are areas, all of these are areas that we are still responsible to God. God will require a reckoning, but some of them are a little more clear cut than others, you see. And so anything in this jagged line area, those are areas where we as Christians 
might or maybe probably will have disagreements with each other because we are thinking through how to best apply these principles. And when you get into those wisdom issues, there will be differences sometimes. And that's, that's okay. As long as we are keeping that principle in mind that God commands us to work towards, as Genesis 9 says, this justice in society and this flourishing in society. That must be behind everything that we as a people, as a society, as a government are trying to do. That is the bottom line goal. How can I work to bring more uh, just nation to pass? How can I work to bring more flourishing and human life and value to pass? When we look at Romans 13, we realize that Genesis 9 is giving us parameters for what the government's responsibility is. And God in Genesis 9 is not solely directing this to government leaders. We see the connection with Romans 13 that this most definitely applies to governments. But in Genesis 9, we shouldn't miss the fact that this is given to not just the government, but to society as a whole to the extent that we have opportunity or ability to do this. So it's not just the government's responsibility, but society. And this is a fascinating, fascinating point. So you remember I would mentioned Cain killing his brother Abel. Cain's famous question is that when God came to him, Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? You remember that moment, that haunting question that Cain asked? God didn't really answer his question there. If you read that passage, he, he doesn't really answer Cain's question. He just enacts the curse against Cain. But here is the next time in Genesis that the word brother comes up. And it's hard to see. I'm reading out of ESV, and it's hard to see in ESV because it doesn't translate it as brother. But verse 5, where it says, fellow man, in my version, in King James or New King James, it will say brother there. This is the first time after the incident with Cain that God brings this word back. And it's like he is answering Cain's question here in this passage. Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? And here, God, by using this same language, is saying, yes. Yes, you as a society are your brother's keeper, that you have a brotherly responsibility towards your fellow man to work towards this good for everyone. Again, there are some implications from this that, one, everyone in the human race is referred to as brothers here. And we could draw out many implications from that, but that means that we are all created equal. One is not less than another. One is not greater than another. It is pride and sin that elevates or denigrates other people. It's not from God. Everyone is referred to in the human race as brothers here. And also an implication would be that society, not just the government, but society is responsible to ensure justice. So it's not just on the government. It's, it's also a responsibility of people, of us, to act justly. It's not just the government who goes around and encourages people, but the people also must act justly, must 
look out for the flourishing or the goodness, the valuing of life of the people around them as well? The short answer is that when should we do that? We should do it whenever we have the ability. And we are all not uh, given the same responsibilities or authorities by God in order to do this on maybe a national or even a local level. But we have relationships where we can do good, where we can help people flourish, where we can make sure that we are acting in a just way towards people. And so in our nation, there are, we know there are many avenues that we can pursue in order to impact this, in order as a society to make sure that we are working towards what God says, that we should enact this justice and flourishing. We have voting. Uh, we know that's coming up. We should pay attention. So if we know that this is what God directs and instructs for us as a principle, that society and government should be working towards this idea of his definition of what is right and wrong, what is just, and what is actually good to help human flourishing, then we should know, hey, where do these people stand on these issues? And we can vote accordingly to support, to value life in that way. Uh, we know there are other ways in our democracy that are great for this as well, whether it's appeals, petitions, courts. There are more, and I'm sure some of you are more well-versed in all those avenues than I am. But the point is that we must not simply assume that things will be just or that things will continue to flourish. It's something that we ourselves have to work towards. It's a mandate given here by God to everyone in the society. And Christians, Christians have a special responsibility in this. Maybe not special responsibility, but a special place in this, in displaying this idea of God's justice, of God's human flourishing. Because the church, when we think about it, government and society, we've thought about how God ordained that in a world that's stained with sin. But we as Christians, when we are thinking about how things should be, we shouldn't only think about how they are now, but we should think about how things will be one day. So if we're thinking about it in a gospel timeline, you might say how things were before the fall in the original creation, how things are in the universe now that sin and the fall has entered, what Jesus did to change those things, to renew, to restore, and ultimately how all things will be consummated in heaven, in those things. That's kind of a gospel thought process. So when we think about government or our society, we shouldn't just think about how it is now, but how will it be when God one day restores everything to perfection? What will eternal government look like? It's a strange thought at first to think about eternal government. Well, why would we need government in a perfect world? But if we think about the idea that Jesus is king. We remember that he will reign forever. That is a governmental type of language, that he is king of kings, that Isaiah prophesied the government would be upon his shoulders, that his kingdom will be perfectly just according to what we see in Genesis 9, that his kingdom will perfectly value life and promote flourishing because he is perfectly good as king. And so as Christians, 
we not only look forward to that kingdom, but we have been made a part of his kingdom right now. And so as Christians individually, as churches, we should be a place where this kingdom that will come is starting to come already right now. We should be a place where the justice of God, where the flourishing of God comes and increases among us, that we are a representation of God. One author put it as, we're like an embassy, an embassy of the coming kingdom. So you remember how embassies work. They represent, for example, the U.S. embassy represents the U.S. in a foreign country. And so in the same way, we as a church represent the foreign, the coming kingdom of God here right now. And so we have the opportunity to display God's good plan, God's good idea of what justice looks like, of what flourishing looks like right now in our midst so that we, when we work towards these things in society, whether it's voting or whatever other avenue, that we not only are working in that way, but we can show people this is what it looks like. This is what God's good picture of people living together in unity looks like. This is what God's good picture of human flourishing looks like because it's already starting to take place amongst the people of God. The local church, one author wrote, is where we learn to love our enemies, forsake our tribalism, beat our swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Here is where we tutor one another in the righteousness and justice of God. Here is where the righteousness of God becomes tangible, credible, believable for the onlooking nations. The local church should strive to live out justice, righteousness, and love in its life together. Then it can commend its understanding of these things to the nation. So if we want to have anything to offer our country, our nation, then we must be living out these truths in our own lives, in our own midst right now. In other words, we must be before we do. You might have heard that phrase before, how we as Christians have already been made something by Jesus. We have been transformed, and we must live those things out. We must be the people of God, be the people of God who represent, who are citizens of his kingdom in order to display true justice, human flourishing, and the goodness and justice of God. And that is the greatest way we can contribute to our country. So we see in Genesis 9, the beginning of government, the institution given by God, that the government's role is to punish wrongdoing according to God's standard of wrongdoing. And we see that that's given not just to government, but to society as a whole, that every one of us should work towards these things as we are given the opportunity in our own lives and relationships. And as Christians, we should know what God's plan for government is, that these are the ideals he sets before us of a truly righteous, just, flourishing people. And we should do what we can to see that come to fruition in the world around us, in our country. But we know as Christians that we are 
ultimately citizens of another kingdom. And so God calls us as pilgrims and sojourners of this earth to ultimately display what this community of God looks like as we live together in the community of the church, that this will be the most powerful, most impactful thing that we can do for this country is to live out these principles in our churches and to shine that light as a beautiful light and warmth to the people around us. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we are thankful for your word. There is, as always, so much more in your word on these topics, on what we have read, so much more to think about, so much more to apply in specifics and generalities. But God, we thank you for your word that you give us these principles, not only for our own lives, not only for our own nation, but reminders of how we should be living right now as a church, interacting with the people around us, that we can, through your power, achieve these things because you have made them a reality already. May we work towards them in our midst so that we would set this example to the watching world of what it means to live together uh, in unity, what it means to flourish as a people who trust you, what it means to serve you as the king. And God, continue to help us as we think through these things. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.